Thinner Logs is a Chicago-based sketch group that writes comedy grounded in shared true, personal stories about our existence as lifelong nerds. We started your stories to give everyone a chance to do what we do, share their own stories, and foster a more heartfelt, welcoming nerd community. Your Stories is about embracing the weird and obscure in your life and asserting your geekdom with a group that gets your references. And, most importantly, Your Stories is a place to bring people up, not to put anyone down. Hey everyone, my name is Eric Arnaud, and this is part one of the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories March 2014 podcast, which we've taken to calling Fan Fiction 2. Uh, you may remember we did a fan fiction show this time last year that ended up being a ton of fun, so we thought we'd give it another spin, and uh, it's fair to say that this one definitely ended up uh, sexier than last time, but you'll have to listen to see what I mean. Um, this month we're lucky enough to be joined by special guests from Peaches and Hot Sauce and the Chicago Nerd Comedy Festival. You'll learn all about them uh, throughout the show, so keep on listening. Uh, there's some sweet stuff coming up for the nerds this month, but we wanted to take a second to plug uh, something that our friends in Chicago Loot Drop are doing. Uh, Loot Drop, you may know, is a charity organization that raises money for kids at Comer Children's Hospital. It's a great, great cause. On Sunday, March 30th at the Public House Theater, which of course is where we record the very show you're listening to, they will be hosting a back-to-back screening of the video game movies Scott Pilgrim vs. the World and Wreck-It Ralph on a 20-foot screen. Uh, and, of course, you can drink because the pub has a fully stocked bar. This event is appropriately called Press Start to Drink. It only costs 10 bucks to attend, and like we already said, your money goes to a great cause. So, uh, highly recommend checking it out. Now, as for the Nerdalogs ourselves... We've got three shows in the immediate vicinity. Uh, our regular Your Stories recording at the pub on Sunday, March 16th. A special Your Stories recording at the Chicago Nerd Comedy Festival on Thursday, March 20th. And a brand new sketch show at the Chicago Nerd Comedy Festival on Saturday, March 22nd. More info on these will be available on our newly redesigned website, uh, which you should definitely check out. That's www.nerdologues.com, as well as our Facebook page. So hit that up right away. Uh, also, don't neglect the other wonderful Nerdalogs podcasts, including Talking Games with Tim and Clayton, MBSing with Mary Beth Smith, and the Nerdalogcast. Alright, that's all I've got for you today, guys. Thanks, everyone, for listening, and enjoy these stories. Um, it's kind of tough to find songs about fan fiction. Last year when we did this, we sang Led Zeppelin songs about Lord of the Rings, but there's only so many of those. Yes! Um, turned out really well, if you guys want to go back and listen to that episode. So, I, I racked my brain about what we could do tonight, and it came to me that, like, a cover song is kind of like fan fiction? Maybe. So these are songs... <laughs> go with the preface. So these are songs that were made famous through covers. So, uh, cool. One, two, three, four...
try to kick things off with a member of the Nerdalogs. Tonight you actually might get more than one doing a thing. I don't know, Chris Geiger has something in store. Chris, do you want to share this with us? Uh, hi, everyone. Uh, for last year's uh, fan, fan fiction, your stories, I wrote some Nerdalogs fan fiction that was universally loved by all. Uh, yeah, especially for how well I captured everyone's voices and our camaraderie and pretty much just how much of a rad dude I am. Uh, so this year for our fan fiction night, pretty much everyone in the Nerdalogs begged me to write a new, like a sequel. Chris, to... nobody asked you to do. Well, that. yeah, no one said it, but everyone implied. You, like imply that you shouldn't do it. This is all. all right, come on, guys, uh, let's give it a chance. We've all grown as writers, so maybe Chris has too. And I wasn't even here for last year, so it's all new to me. See, I was doing this for Mary Beth. Thanks. Uh, <laughs> and you want you don't want to let Mary Beth down, so. All right, All right, so last year, to recap, the Nerdalogs were in a scary house, and there was a ghost, and, and Kevin got a fear boner, and then I showed up with beer, and it was a party, and I came a lot. Uh, fast, fast forward to now, the Nerdalogs in their, are in their spaceship, the USS Boner Town, with Kevin, with Kevin as the captain. Hell yeah. Good job, Kevin. Thank you. Uh, the crew is pretty much Claire, Steve, and Mary Beth, which is good since they're all here tonight. Uh, anyway, uh, the ship is like a space shuttle, so it's like long and has like a rounded tip and has like two big engines that are like, like, and then, you Can know, it's like read, this. Uh, the script says the number eight, three equals size. <laughs> so you, you know what I mean, right? Uh, and, and so then they were like flying around the planet Earth and shit, taking readings. Mary Beth, start the scan. You got it, Kev. Oh no, you guys! The left engine is broken! Our ship is going to fly out of orbit and into space! I'm panicking! I'm panicking! <laughs> Chris, I wouldn't say that. Yes, I would. <laughs> uh, what are we gonna do? Uh, we need to start venting air from the front to slow us down. So then the front hatch of the ship opened and they started venting air out into space. But in space, air is like gooey, so it came out, you know, like it came out the front real slowly, like, you know, it came out like... <laughs> yeah, yeah, we get it. Yeah, we get it. Cool, red. Right. It's, it's not slowing us down, we're still going out of orbit. Hang on, our senses are picking up something. It's Chris, intergalactic bounty hunter and the renowned slayer of babes and beers. The poon hound of the universe. And, and sure enough, Chris jetted out from nowhere with his space jetpack that's a lot like Boba Fett's, just like, looks fucking awesome. And, uh, and his, like, long hair was blowing in the wind of space. There's, like, a million things wrong with this. Don't worry, guys, I got you, Chris said. He looked so rad as he met up with the ship. He gave them, he gave them each a beer and started playing some fucking aggressive-ass dubstep music on a beatbox. <laughs> And everyone was dancing and shit, and then everyone started making out, like, hard, you know? He's saving us, and he's a party monster. <laughs> this is awesome. <laughs> he's tying a rope from his massive dick to the front of the ship, and is towing us down to the planet. Chris hit his jetpack and started towing them down to Earth, like the flames of the atmosphere burning off his clothes and showing his muscles. Oh no, our heat shield is down. We're gonna burn up in the atmosphere. And then Chris, from all the tugging and rubbing of the rope, fucking came oh, and coated the ship with his jizz. <laughs> yeah! Chris's jizz is saving us from the atmosphere. <laughs> and now I'm pregnant. You're like Junior! 
And like the force of his, uh, like stopped to their descent and they landed safely. And then everyone like rubbed all over each other in joy. And then President Eric Garneau of the world's government said, Chris, intergalactic bounty hunter and slayer of babes and beers. We hereby give you the medal for being fucking rad. Congratulations. And then Chris said, no thanks. I already knew it. Give it to Steve. He's cool too and his dick is bigger than mine. <laughs> What are you going to do now, Chris? Fucking save the galaxy, Chris said. And then he blasted off with his jizz into space where he became Galactus. Except instead of instead of eating planets, he fucks them and forgets them because that's the kind of rude duty he is. The end! Yeah! Uh, Alright, this is my favorite line of the script so far. Well, this was certainly a script. Yep. <laughs> Thanks, Claire. What are you going to name your kid, Kevin? Uh, in the footnotes, it says, I name him after Chris, of course. Uh, but I think I'm going to name him after Jando, the truest, raddest, and baddest dude in the galaxy. Hey, yeah. wait a minute. Ah, uh, you're right. I'll make some rewrites. Make a lot of rewrites. <laughs> Thanks, everybody. I just, I want everyone to know that Chris asked me, could he please go first so we could get that out of the way? <laughs> So, it has now gotten... premature. Oh! Steve Hirsch, everybody. I can't read my notes. Um, We do have special guests in the house tonight. We have a couple groups of awesome people who are here to help us do your stories. Uh, First up, we have Peaches and Hot Sauce, which is a comedy production collective in Chicago. They do wonderful work, both, both podcasts and videos. They brought six people to share shit with us tonight, which is awesome. They really, yeah, this is great, you guys. You really you really showed up for this, literally and figuratively. And the first person who is coming to share with us tonight is Mike Barnard. Okay, so the theme for tonight is fan fiction. This is kind of related. It's more like LARPing or like live-action role-playing, if you guys are familiar. So I'm going to take you back to 1993. It was a big, big year for me. I was seven years old. Uh, I moved to a new town. I met one of my lifelong best friends. And the television show, The Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, made its debut. Yeah. Also, it was the first time I learned what it feels like to be a racist. <laughs> um, but let me, let me back up. Okay, so at the beginning of summer 1993, I moved to Park Ridge Drive in Chaska, Minnesota. And, like, the neighborhood... Oh, thanks. You're from there, probably. Do I know you? Okay, so... Um, <laughs> Um, so that neighborhood uh, and the people in it, they were like an integral part of my upbringing. It was like really idyllic. Uh, it was like the classic suburban neighborhood where like, you know, doors were left unlocked at night and the kids all played together. It was like 1993, but it felt more like the 60s and at the neighborhood. It was like pretty reminiscent of like the Sandlot and Stand By Me. Just way less dead bodies. And so um, so the, fr- the first friend that I met there and the one that ended up being my best one uh, was my friend Jeff. Uh, and uh, we bonded over something that to this day remains one of my key criteria for bonding with pretty much anybody, which was the shows and cartoons we watched on Saturday morning. Um, so it's August. Uh, one day Jeff and I were at, like, at a neighbor's house where they always let us shoot hoops. And two other kids from the neighborhood, Ben and Keith, who live nearby in like a cul-de-sac, come over. And Ben calls out to Jeff and I and then asks if we want to play Power Rangers. Now, Jeff immediately just chucks the basketball into the yard and starts throwing spin kicks into the air. <laughs> and I'm confused because I don't know Power Rangers. 
And Ben and Keith just stop in their tracks. They're like, you don't know Power Rangers. And for a moment, like, I felt this sting of betrayal because, like, I had once spent an afternoon in Jeff's garage drawing pictures on a chalkboard breaking down how the X-Men's villains relate to the X-Men themselves, <laughs> either through familial ties or past personal history. And, like, he can't drop me a slice of knowledge about Power Rangers. Um, but it's okay, Jeff explains. There's only been one episode. Now... Take that in for a second. I think a lot of us remember Power Rangers and played Power Rangers. It was that fucking fast. Like, one episode, and it completely permeated the culture of making pretend. And so, and I missed that first episode. So now I'm, like, playing catch-up. Okay, so how do I play? And I, uh, so step one is picking a color. Pink and yellow are girls, so you can be red, black, or blue. Jeff calls black, so I say, okay, I'll be blue. Again, everybody just stops and looks at me, and they're like, Blue? That's Billy. He's a nerd. (laughs) First of all, you never said that. (laughs) Second, doesn't somebody have to be blue? There's, I mean, there's four of us. Jeff's black, I'm blue. So what are Ben and Keith going to be? So they decide that they're both going to be red. Now, keep in mind, there's no Green Ranger. So they both just decide, oh, we're going to both be red. Which, I mean, that's kind of fucked up in itself, right? Because even among seven-year-olds, the hatred for nerds is so strong that even if I wasn't there, they would have rather, like, rewrite the whole show so there are two Jasons instead of force one of them to be a Billy. So anyway, so I played catch-up, and I made sure to start watching the show, and, and I loved it. And, like, I weirdly stuck by Billy, though. Like, I, maybe out of stubbornness to my original color choice, but I like, I like to think that I've always just, like, been a champion of the underdogs. And, you know, like, at recess, you know, nobody challenged me for, like, the right to play Billy on the playground. You know, it's like every afternoon I always got to play, like, a lead role, and I had no understudy. Um, so, so now there's some other really important characters from my old neighborhood that I haven't introduced, and that's the Sarkises. Randy Sarkis lived across the street from Jeff, and he is another person that I became really good friends with over the years. He was from Philadelphia originally and had a really pronounced East Coast accent, and he was into a lot of the same stuff that Jeff and I were into, you know, video games, X-Men. His biggest passion was for Spider-Man. I should note, though, that Randy Sarkis was also 40 years old. <laughs> Don't get nervous. It's not, it's not like that. <laughs> he was really good friends with Jeff's parents and had a daughter our age. It just so happened that he was an overgrown child. So, but that's not really how Randy relates to the story. You see, the other notable thing about him was that Randy uh, was married to a Taiwanese woman. And despite looking and sounding like Tony Danza, his two kids looked much more like her. Now, his daughter Sammy was a year younger than Jeff and I, and despite her father's massive dorkiness, she actually wasn't all that interested in comic books or cartoons. She was a quiet girl who actually like often rolled her eyes while Randy geeked out what should have been her peers. Um, well, one day we're all in Jeff's backyard. There was me, Jeff, Ben, Sammy, and Rachel, who lived in the house right behind Jeff. So that was three boys, two girls. The exact number needed for Power Rangers. <laughs> So let's play. Okay, so what color are you? Jeff is always Zach. Ben calls Jason. Now, now, nobody fight me for Billy. (laughs) Sammy says, I'll be Kimberly. Now, I don't know who said it, and I've convinced myself that it wasn't me, but someone in a much less tactful way indicated that it might make more sense (laughs) if she played Trini. Why? Because we have three boys and two girls, one to play everybody. You also happen to look like the Yellow Ranger. 
And it sounded like it made so much sense. But in that moment, I learned how little sense it made. Why could Ben and Keith both change the rules to make two Red Rangers? Why could Jeff always, always insist on playing Zack the Black Ranger, despite the fact that Jeff is not now, nor has he ever been black? (laughs) Well, Rachel said, I want to be Kimberly. And I will never forget the look on Sammy's face. And I will never forget how she stood her ground and said, okay, so we'll both be Kimberly. Let's play. (laughs) Now, this is a small town in Minnesota, so as you can imagine, an overwhelming majority of people looked exactly the same. And we were seven, and the argument was so innocent, but it just shows how easy it is and how naturally we want to assume and automatically designate people to certain roles. Now, I don't really have a little, like, neat bow to put on this story. Um, it would be awesome if I could come up with, like, a radical conclusion in which, A, I solve racism. <laughs> or, B, like, write myself a kick-ass outro that, like, kind of, like, relates and ties into everything, my overall thesis, in which I'm like, you know, everybody, it's morphin' time. Let's all morph into better people and lock together into a megazord of equality. Um, well, that's really gross. So, so I don't know. It's, if my childhood really was like a cinematic nostalgia piece, maybe like Richard Dreyfus could narrate and let us all know how everyone kind of turned out. Um, Jeff moved to Missouri when we were 10. We still keep in touch. He works at a bank. He no longer insists on pretending to be black. Uh, Rachel became kind of like dark and cynical theater kid. I lost touch with her after high school. Um, Sammy became a state champion in tennis and now serves in the United States Air Force. Um, Keith... Keith, I always hated. He was like the dirty kid in the neighborhood. He was just always dirty. And uh, so I actually had to look him up for the purpose of this story. He lives in an even smaller town in Minnesota, has a mustache, and his big passion in life seems to be fishing, which in Minnesota that constitutes as an identity. Um, ben moved to Nebraska when we were eight, and I so I haven't seen or spoken to him in almost 20 years. He's probably still racist. Um, I don't know. That's just my assumption. But then there's me, uh, the most pathetic of all. Uh, I'm right here trying to relate to a crowd of people with stories of youth and simple pastimes and nerdy references and of adolescent shame like the needy, insecure, fucking Blue Ranger pussy that I am. What's a Billy? Always a Billy. Thanks, everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Billy chant. Uh, th- oh, what? Do you want to you say something? It- uh, one time when I was a little kid, uh, my neighbor tried to make me play Kimberly when we were playing Power Rangers, and he wouldn't let it go, uh, and so I swung off the playground on a rope and kicked him in the stomach and ran home. <laughs> yeah. Thank you very much, Mike. Uh, where can people hear or see you, uh, with peaches and hot sauce? Uh, at live shows, mostly. Yes. <laughs> right on. Yeah. So in addition to Peaches and Hot Sauce, we have some folks from the Chicago Nerd Comedy Festival here tonight. That is especially cool because they actually do a live fan fiction reading once a month called Hey, I'm a Big Fan over at Stage 773, so it made perfect sense to have some of them here. Uh, one of those gentlemen is Mr. Finn Coe. Yeah. I guess I'm just leaping right into this. Oh, trying to connect, aren't we all? Um, (laughs) Okay, lights high number 32, the trouble with brothers. Goofus stared into the mirror. (laughs) He hated what he saw in it. A ratty old football sweater, 
He wanted to wear other shirts, but his mom only ever bought him football sweaters. And they all seemed to get torn and blemished after just a few wears. Messy brown hair, all snags and cowlicks, dull, empty eyes, yellowed teeth. At lunch, his best friend, his only friend, Scotty Ne'er-Do-Well, had asked him why he was so glum. Goofus hadn't known what to say or where to even start. It was just getting to be too much. It seemed like no matter what he did, it was always the wrong move. If the teacher asked a question, Goofus shouted out the wrong answer, and it was usually incorrect. He never passed to any of his teammates in basketball, and as a result, they no longer passed to him. He habitually stayed up too late and missed his bus. He'd become a pariah at lights high, just like he had always been. But this time, he'd tried real hard. Or at least he thought he had, yeah. Uh, Goofus had just shrugged at Scotty and Everduel's question, prompting Scotty to shrug back and offer him another hit off his joint. (laughs) Uncharacteristically, Goofus had declined. The question had unsettled him. Looking into the mirror that evening after school, Goofus knew the answer. Gallant, he whispered hoarsely. (laughs) All his life, his twin brother Gallant had been everything he'd tried and failed to be. Successful, polite, continent. It It sometimes felt like maybe Goofus's mistakes wouldn't have seemed so stupid or severe if Gallant hadn't been right by his side making the right choice over Goofus's wrong one. It had been that way since they were children. Goofus would eat too fast and get a stomach ache, while Gallant would eat his food normally and get Goofus's dessert in addition to his own. <laughs> Goofus would crash his toy airplane while Gallant played carefully and was now able to sell his childhood toys online to collectors. <laughs> Gallant listened to the ski instructor and had a good time while Goofus impaled his thigh with his own pole. <laughs> and today, today had been the worst. Goofus had loved Violet Alden for as long as he could remember. The Aldens lived up in the hills with their rich grandfather and always hung out together, but Goofus had carried a torch for Violet from the moment he first set eyes on her. This year, he decided it was time to do something about it. He was going to ask her to the non-denominational motivational sock hop social. <laughs> the trouble was, he didn't want to mess this up. He'd spent weeks practicing in the mirror, planning how he would start the conversation and rehearsing what he'd say to any of her possible responses. And this morning, between first and second periods, he'd asked her, Hi, Violet, he'd said, successfully avoiding referring to her as ho or girl. (laughs) Do you have a minute? Sure, Goofus, she had replied cheerfully, setting his heart a tremble. What's up? Goofus had taken half a moment to jar and ether the butterflies in his stomach, choosing his words as carefully as a lepidopterologist, pinning and mounting his specimens. I was just wondering if you'd like to go to the sock hop with me, he said. Nicely done, he thought. I didn't mention my admiration for Stalin or my testicular eczema. (laughs) The non-denominational one, she had asked. Yeah, that one, Goofus had said, his hopes and his gorge rising. Oh, she'd said, her beautiful brows knitting. I'm sorry. I'd love to, but I can't. Gallant already asked me. Outwardly, Goofus had merely stared. Inside, he had screamed like the winter wind. (laughs) You see, Violet had said apologetically, you, Goofus, waited until the last minute to ask me. (laughs) Gallant asked me as soon as the sock hop was announced. That had been this morning. Now, Goofus's hands gripped the sides of the sink as he looked hard into his reflection. 
It wasn't fair. It had never been fair. Even as babies. Gallant slept through the night. Goofus wriggled out of his onesie, peed on it, then got his head stuck between the bars of the crib. Even at birth, Gallant had crowned head first while Goofus had tried to burrow into his mother's small intestine. His knuckles whitened as he stared at his face. Gallant's face. Gallant, he whispered again. His hands moved to the taps, turned them on. Hot water gushed. Gallant. He plunged his head into the sink, held it there, came up gasping, gasping his brother's name. He plunged his head in again, but lost his nerve. He came up, fighting for air. His reflection was worse than before. He looked like a freckly drowned rat. He angrily ran his fingers through his wet hair, yelped at a tangle, and in a fit of rage grabbed his mother's hairbrush and yanked it torturously through the snarls. He clawed at his rebellious hair with the brush, his scalp protesting over and over again as his vision blurred with tears. When he could see again, Goofus recognized the face in the mirror. Gallant, he whispered again, this time in awe. Numbly, Goofus walked downstairs. His mother caught sight of him as he entered the kitchen. Oh, Goofus, what are... Oh, she paused. I'm sorry, sweetheart. I thought for a second you were Goofus. Goofus stared at his mother. Well, that sweater certainly isn't helping. I'll buy Goofus some new ones, and you can swap your grubby ones out with those. Goofus remembered to breathe. His mind raced. Like... Like I always do, right? His mother smiled. Yes, sweetie. God, your brother's a fucking dumbass, isn't he? Goofus just nodded. His world was crumbling, crumbling beneath him. Dinner's almost ready, his mother said, turning back to her meatloaf. Will you go tell your accident of a brother to come downstairs and set the table? She looked more closely at him, and Goofus winced from her gaze. Gallant, are you feeling all right? Would you like a cookie or something before dinner? Or some scotch? <laughs> Somehow, Goofus found his words. I, I'm all right, thanks. Uh, I'll go get... I'll go get Goofus. Are you sure? His mother asked, looking at him with more concern than she ever had in his life. A Vicodin, maybe? You look tense. <laughs> oh, you know, he improvised. Just one of those days. Goofus made a real tit of himself today, you know? Total embarrassment. His mother nodded in understanding. He's a real turd, he is. <laughs> well, if you change your mind, just give me a wink and I'll put some Baileys in your milk. Goofus nodded again and turned to head back upstairs, his heart pounding. Everything made sense now. Sweet, perfect sense. He could be as happy as Gallant. All he had to do was comb his hair write a note and murder his brother. <laughs> he took another step up the stairs. If Goofus left a note claiming he'd run away, no one would go looking for him. Not as long as Gallant was still around. And no one would ever expect Gallant to do away with his own brother. Gallant was the perfect child. It was the perfect crime. He reached the top of the landing. His mother would love him, his father would respect him and probably stop whipping him, and best of all, he'd get to go to the sock hop with Violet Alden. Goofus grabbed a heavy bronze paperweight off of the hallway bookshelf as he walked past it. His head was light, his blood singing. He knocked on Gallant's bedroom door, soon to be his own bedroom door. Coming, came the reply. Gallant opened the door and did a double take. Goofus? The paperweight, the paperweight hit the carpet with a muffled thud. Gallant. He whispered. Then their lips were locked, their hands mussing one another's... Their hands mussing one another's perfect side parts, their football sweaters mashed against one another until it became impossible to tell who was Goofus and who was Gallant. The end. Thank you, 
So, hey, I'm a big fan. The third Wednesday of every month at Stage 773? Yes. Wonderful. So, uh, 7 p.m.? Yes. You guys should check that out. It's a sweet show. Ed Soderbergh helps out with that quite a bit, don't you, Ed? And Danny. A little bit, yeah. And Danny Vass, yeah. my roommate. Yeah. Who's <laughs> <laughs> my roommate, Danny Vass? Okay. Thank you so much, Finn. Uh, coming up next from Peaches and Hot Sauce, Zach Mast. Uh, all right, hi guys. Um, so I didn't quite uh, fit the theme here, uh, but I just have a little short essay. Uh, so if you want to write some fan fiction about it later, uh, feel free. Um, so anyway, a few months ago, I uh, stumbled across uh, this weird genre of gaming called the speedrunning community. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, which, if you don't know, uh, it's essentially a, a cult of gamers. Uh, who either as a hobby or a psychosis decide to play through games as fast as possible, right? Um, and it's something we've all done, of course, with our favorite games. Uh, a good old test of skill and dexterity. Uh, like I could take my normal 10 hours to make it through the first level of Echo the Dolphin. Uh, or I could work at it and practice and just try to beat it in four hours instead. Uh, but uh, one of my other all-time favorite games is the Ocarina of Time. Uh, and um, I probably played it close to like a dozen times over my life. Uh, like I played it recently, and I like I literally said this to myself, like, I'm going to see how fast I could beat the Water Temple. Uh, and I made it at like an hour exactly. <laughs> uh, I'm sure it's possible to do it in 20 minutes if you're really good. But uh, anyway, I fucking rule. Uh <laughs> I could probably beat the whole game in like eight, ten hours tops. Like, uh, but there's this guy Cosmo, uh, who's like a guy. He, I think he lives in Chicago. Actually, um, he can beat the entire game in under twenty minutes. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Yeah, that's not that's not a game. Uh, because uh, like most speedrunners, Cosmo uses these glitches to just skip like entire sections of the game. Uh, like they found like a, a way to after the first dungeon. If you're familiar with Ocarina of Time, after the first dungeon, you uh, if you have a bottle and then you, you beat you die when you fight Goma and like anyway you go through a door and instead of and it warps you right to the final battle with Ganon. <laughs> uh, and so you're young Link and you can just fight Ganon uh, and you have the Master Sword. I don't know. It's um. Yeah, it sounds ridiculous, right? I, I think it's cool uh, to sort of, like, find these glitches and exploit them. Uh, but I wonder, like, are you really beating the game if you just skip over the entire story? Um, like, this guy can just take young Link to Ganon and save the world without ever getting the Master Sword or moving a single block or scrolling through that fucking owl. <laughs> So how is that anything less than just cheating yourself out of nostalgia, right? Like, I wonder if we'll ever reach a point uh, where we can start speedrunning through our lives. Uh, like, some of us will spend the whole painstaking time getting jobs and losing girlfriends and worrying about the future. And some of us will just find the glitch, the shortcut and the universe's ROM that lets us skip puberty altogether or 
sail right past virginity and have our first time with a full inventory and a thousand stamina points. <laughs> like, I wonder if some of us will never have to witness our grandparents die or see the look in a crush's eyes when she sees Kyle for the first time at a party that you took her to. <laughs> uh, like, some of us could just skip right to the credits of our lives when we're already 10 years old with an obituary in the New York Times about the company we build up for 30 years or the world-changing invention that came to us when we were 25 or the wife we met overseas during our the war or the heartbreak we felt when our dad died. All of these are just levels we can gloss over with just the right glitch, then see who can finish this long, fulfilling life before they reach the age of seven. Uh... I guess some people already do speed run through their lives, like, uh, but we call it crime. <laughs> uh, like, isn't Bernie Madoff just the cosmo of the financial industry? Right? But for most of us, we have to play through the entire story of our lives, solving every puzzle and watching every excruciating cutscene. Uh, we all have to be Echo the Dolphin. Just swimming idly through the undercaves, uh, confused and lost and <laughs> sometimes searching for a pocket of air or just taking the time to sing at the circle of starfish. Uh, at least that's how I remember the game. But I'm glad that I have the memories. All right, thanks. Thank you, Zach. Uh, that, that Cosmo run is on YouTube. It's it's incredible. Like, yeah, it doesn't really seem like playing the game, but it's crazy to watch this guy go. Uh, I recommend watching it if you have like 22 minutes. Yeah, it's actually really fun. Yeah, right. <laughs> Not to sit on your thesis because I totally agree with you. But in the way that it's fun to watch Bernie Madoff be Bernie Madoff, maybe. I don't know. Uh, so guys, a year ago when we did fan fiction February 1, something magical happened. We were introduced to one of, uh, the Neurologs Collective favorite people. Uh, he's a dear friend of mine. We play magic together. We hang out. Uh, and, uh, I love to hear him tell stories and I'm sure he's got a great one now. Mr. Kyle Talley. Yeah! Alright. <laughs> so, uh, first of all, this story is completely fictional. Any characters resembling people living or dead is just a coincidence. And I also feel outclassed by the Goofus and Gallant story. Um, so uh, last year I, I wrote a story about uh, me and Gambit having an affair. Um, so continuing the theme, it was a hot night even for New Orleans. Chuck's wasn't that busy for a Saturday, so I was able to sit at the bar and get drunk in peace and quiet. The TV behind me, the, the TV behind the bar was playing some news story about Senator Kelly's Mutant Res Registration Act. <laughs> Would you turn this shit off, I yelled. Just then the door opened. Now share. That isn't any way to talk to our dear friend, Chuck. <laughs> Gambit threw a card at the TV and it, the power button and it flickered off. Remy. I gasped. <laughs> I thought you were killed by Belladonna during the last fight with the assassins. Cher, <laughs> the assassins could never kill old Remy. 
they're too slow. <laughs> I got off my bar stool and ran to embrace him. Part of me wanted to run him through with my adamantium claws that were twice as sharp as Wolverine's. Oh. But that was just a fleeting thought. I miss you so much, I said, as I kissed him deeply. I miss you too, Cher. I could feel him grow harder as we kissed beneath his jeans, as I'm sure he could feel me. Now, as I set the pen down to give my hand a rest, I thought, man, the nerdologues are really going to like this story. All of a sudden, the door to my room burst open. <laughs> and standing in the doorway wearing only a bathrobe was Nate Bechtel. Nate Bechtel, could you please stand up? <laughs> Jesus, Nate, what are you doing? I yelled. What am I doing? What are you doing, nerd? <laughs> Nothing, I, I said defensively. Sure, you're not nerd. <laughs> he, as he snatched the book away from my hand. Give it back, Nate, I yelled. As I tried to grab the notebook, but he pushed me away with his superior strength. <laughs> Writing more stories about you and Gambit? Ha! Like he'd ever want you. You're not even good at Magic the Gathering. <laughs> we all know you're the best at Magic the Gathering, Nate. Bentley, Drew, Eric, none of them could beat you. You don't have to tease me every time I lose to you. I'm tired of your bullying, Nate. I said, finally standing up to him. Then, out of nowhere, Nate began to kiss me. I resisted at first, but then realized I was into it. I slowly started to undo Nate's robe. I've never done this before, I said. Thus ends chapter one. Now... If you guys would like to see this done live, like, like on the internet, I have this non, uh, non-disclosure agreement that I'd like Nate to sign so we have the rights to his life, life and likeness. I have a pen somewhere here. Nate, could you please come up and sign? Thank you. Could you please? If, if you're okay with that, being a sketch on MuscularClown.com, please sign your name. And I have to. I honestly have to make sure my soul is. <laughs> Damn it! Five by them to get it. Hey, just, just take a glance. It's, it's a, lot, a of lot of pages. It's <laughs> most of it's a non-disclosure agreement. Some of it isn't. All your witnesses. Thank you. I'm doing this because for some reason you wanted to see us fuck. Yeah. You, thank you guys. I, uh, I don't exactly know what just happened, but when Kyle told me he was going to tell a story, he told me that it was his magnum opus. I think we can agree that that is indeed a magnum opus. Uh, Kyle, or, uh, yeah, Kyle is one third of the video sketch group Muscular Clown, by the way, MuscularClown.com. They've worked with an airlock before. They do great stuff, so go to that website. Alright guys, we're going to do two more stories and then we're going to take a short break. Up next we have a tag team for Peaches and Hot Sauce. This is Jack Pelzer and Bree Fitzpatrick. (laughs) Jon Snow could not remember how long he slept. 
The three rangers, their wilding prisoner in tow, had left Castle Black 12 days prior to investigate strange rumors emanating from the north. Wildings captured near the wall recounted strange tales of mythical beasts that fed off the cold and grew stronger with darkness. He reminded him of the stories old Nan told him as a boy. She told him of black creatures, half the size of men, but double in strength against the elements. As a young child, John sometimes imagined himself amongst these strange beasts, the same as they, but accepted them as brothers instead of the bastard Stark. As he raised his head from his skin, a sharp note hit John's nose. His knife was already drawn before his own mind consciously acknowledged the metallic smell of blood. His two companions, who moments before appeared merely wrapped in the soft grip of sleep, he now saw were drained completely of life. Each lay perfectly still, their eyes white, gray, and glossy, a pool of blood collected neatly beneath the nape of each ranger's neck. Like a lightning bolt made of purebred stallions, John lunged from his bedding, momentarily forgetting the rangers had made their camp on a particularly steep edifice. His feet went skywards, then groundwards, then skywards once more. As he tumbled down the hill, each rock that made contact with his head brought new regrets about becoming a brother of the Night's Watch. When finally Jon Snow reached the bottom of the embankment, he groaned and opened his eyes, only to be face to face with a beast of lore. Shining black onyx beads stared back into Jon's eyes, embedded into a smooth and glossy visage like polished monochromatic leather. The terrible creature was like a bird, with a thin curved beak, but unlike any animal he had seen in Winterfell. A thin layer of film descended over the bird beast's eyes and just as quickly retracted into its head again. What? (laughs) John muttered reflexively. The extra clear eyelid allows them to see whilst underwater. John careened his head around to find the captured wildling calmly standing behind him. The barbarian reached into his pocket and produced a small fish that he threw into the beast's already open mouth. What is this demon? Asked John Snow. As he asked, he ignored the faint voice in the back of his head that taunted. You know nothing, John Snow. These are penguins, Snow. (laughs) And in the harshest place on Earth, their love will find a way. I swore away love when I made my vows to the Night's Watch. The ragged crow drew his blade, but soon found him overrun by a gaggle of small flightless birds. (laughs) I will not go as easily as my companions! He shouted, hurtling small arctic animals in every direction. Before he knew what was happening, John felt the dull thud of wet rubber across his cheek. They're slapping me! (laughs) Shrieked the ranger in a feminine tone antithetical to the persona of a night watchman. cried the grizzled alpha female who stood as high as a medium-sized dog. (laughs) Shira Fishbane perceived you as a threat. But this comes a time when... When it comes time to pair off, male penguins are in shorter supply than females. And the competition for eligible mate often comes to blows. 
Adorable flipper-induced blows. <laughs> These creatures are anything but adorable. They killed my fellow rangers. The noble penguins did not kill your companions, Crow. Something far more evil has been awakened in the north. But if not them... John's words evaporated into the freezing air as he spied another grouping of penguins, sliding swiftly on their stomachs towards him. He leapt quickly to the left, fearing attacked, but noticed that the rotund birds slipped past him without aggression. It was as if they were escaping another force. John squinted into the alabaster distance, trying to discern what the penguins fled. (laughs) The creatures wailed in panic. Before John could open his mouth, the wildling prisoner grabbed him by the shoulder, his face twisted in fear. Weapon seals, run! Thank you, guys. Jack, breathe. Thank you. Thank you so much. That was super sweet. All right, guys. One more story, then we are going to take a short break. Coming up next, a wonderful Chicago comics artist. He has material available for sale now that you should check out. Mr. Kevin Budnick. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. Thanks, everybody. Uh, so let me just find my. I have a lot of papers here. Uh, before I start, here's a list of uh, some some crossover fan fictions that I thought about writing, but um, I don't have nearly the comedy chops of anybody who's gone up tonight, so uh, you guys can just use these for whatever you want. <laughs> uh, lost in space. Yeah. Uh, this, one, this one came to me... Uh, like, you know that weird... Twilight, uh, between like waking up and not waking up, uh, being asleep is what they call it. Um, <laughs> Breaking Bad Amish. Breaking Amish. That's the show. Uh, and then the last one, I wasn't able to come up with more than three of these. Uh, Brady Bunch 2014, which actually it's a reboot of the Brady Bunch, but it's only about Cousin Oliver. So, like, just all of them are doing other stuff, and he's the only one they could get. Uh, <laughs> So, uh, I'll admit that when I signed up, uh, I didn't have a story. Uh, I was going to write something uh, about fans, like literally write a fiction about uh, an oscillating fan, a desk fan, and a ceiling fan. Uh, But like I said, I lacked the comedy chops to make this work. Uh, so I waited for his story to materialize, and when one, one didn't, I kind of withdrew myself for the list. Um, but it just so happens that I was able to come tonight, and uh, I'm really glad I did, because everybody who's gone up has made what I managed to write uh, that much more kind of, I think, important. Uh, when I was coming up with an idea, I just decided to sort of write something about what the nature of fan fiction is. Um, I mean, I, I, I think I understand how fandoms work. Uh, I like stuff. I like some things a lot. And, uh, I like some things a lot. And some people like some things enough to make, uh, to craft graven images in tome and weave stories out of characters they love. Uh, MSDs, Whovians, Trekkies, or is it Trekkers? I'm 
there was some sort of uh, contingency point on this, so I need to know the answer. Talk to me later. Uh, <laughs> Beliebers, bronies, Whedonites, or Whedonophiles, I'm not sure if I made either of those up. Uh, <laughs> Twihard, Sherlockians, Bubbleine shippers, uh, and general Tumblr users. Uh, I, I know what all of these things are. I know what all of these words mean. Uh, these words mean a devotion to something so fierce that you want to take ownership of that piece of art, be it film, TV, or literature. Uh, it's an intense love, a, a creative impulse, the desire to stand uh, on the edge of a world full of rules that you know and well-defined characters that you didn't create, but still shout, look how much I love this thing, <laughs> then subsequently smash all of those well-defined characters and rules while shouting, but now I'm going to have them all make out with each other. <laughs> uh, so I've, I've never written a fan fiction, um, but I think that that fan fiction is important because it's about it's about reaching out to someone and uh, reaching out to a community and there's a lot of ways you can do that but uh, fan fiction is one of the most special and I think that that it's just good to to take a second and honor that so that's all I got thank you here's a song that fits our category twice because I remember when. Uh, this is Last Kiss by Pearl Jam. When Pearl Jam did this, a lot of people who were like trying to be cool and country and were like, oh, the original by so-and-so was so much better. But that wasn't actually the original. The original is a very shitty like surf rock song uh, recorded at the University of Georgia Library or some shit that like the artist that like made it famous the first time found. So anyway, this is the artist that made it most famous. This is Last Kiss by Pearl Jam. One, two, three. Oh,
Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.